Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed in Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. It's August 29th, 2022, and today is the 17th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina making landfall on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and Louisiana. 17 years since the country to the day watched as much of a major American city plunged underwater and more than 1,800 lives were lost. And just last week was the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew, which is still the strongest and most impactful hurricane ever to hit South Florida. So on this heavy-hearted anniversary, we're joined by our good friend and TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Sewell, to help us understand the role the federal government needs to play to ensure communities have plans in place that are tailored to the risks and opportunities the disaster presents. Because every disaster, while it may be a tragic opportunity, is an opportunity nonetheless to remake these communities to make them less vulnerable to inevitable future disasters. Josh, you always get the easy topics. Yeah, this one ain't easy, but it's really, really important. Ain't that the truth? So Josh, even if 2022 turns out to be a relatively light year for hurricanes, We know there will be storms in the future, and if your house or community is hit by a major hurricane, it doesn't matter to you if it was the only storm that year or one of several dozen. On this 17th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, is America better prepared for these inevitable disasters? As a whole, no. First, we keep seeing disasters that surprise us. Some communities are safer now, but many are not, and that still needs to change. So Josh, I teased this a little bit. Tell our uh, Budget Watchdog AF listeners about this 2022 season and and what's going on here this year as far as hurricanes. Yeah, so certainly this has been a very quiet uh, hurricane season. So we're here in late August and there have only been three named storms and all of them have been tropical, which means they're not as severe as a hurricane. Uh, So it's been very quiet. However, that does not mean it's going to stay quiet. As we mentioned in the intro, Hurricane Andrew was the first as an A, was the first named storm of that season. And it became, to that time, the most destructive hurricane, uh, at least to that point in history for the United States. And so this late in the year also, Katrina was this late in the year. uh, And that obviously had a very uh, costly effect on people, both in property and extremely importantly, in lives. So just because it's been quiet so far doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. Got it. Yeah. And I mean, Andrew was only one of, uh, I think it's four Cat 5 hurricanes that hit made landfall in the U.S. Uh, since 1900. Um, and, that, um, and then, you know, Katrina wasn't the, by far the last storm in, in 2005. You had major storms, Rita and Wilma. And then, you know, you went five letters into the Greek alphabet. They actually ran out of names. Um, and they had last name storm. Zeta was in, uh, I think, December 30th. So, yeah, clearly it... it we're not out of the woods. I'll put it that way. And these are the, we're adding into the more active months. Um, 
So what, you know, you said that, that this needs to change. So what, what are some of the concrete steps? What are some of the things that, that communities need to do? What does the federal government need to do to entice states and communities to take these roles? First off, I think we need to start preparing for the someday inevitable. We know that disasters are going to happen. Uh, you may not know exactly when, but disasters will happen and particular disasters will happen for, for communities depending on what they face. And I, before we get into it too much, I think it's important to talk about the fact that disasters are where government can excel or fail. So the stakes are extremely high. When we do disaster preparation and disaster response well, it saves money. But even more importantly, it saves lives. If we do it wrong, people lose property. They undergo all kinds of stress. If you've ever seen, if you've ever been involved in a flood, if you've been involved in any sort of disaster, it is extremely stressful. And again, bad policy can lead to people dying. So this is an extremely important thing to work on. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the first step is, is really um, acknowledging the risks that these uh, communities face. And yet we have programs like the National Flood Insurance Program that has baked in cross subsidies that uh, hide the risk and actually don't communicate that to the people through the premiums. Even if you had subsidies outside the rate structure, you would actually be able to understand that you're at a higher risk than another house and do things to mitigate that risk at a, at a property level. And then also communities could target those areas to do this. And so I think that th this is just really a critical risk communication is one critical step where the government is falling down through its own program that was created in 1968, the National Flood Insurance Program. One of the things about the flood insurance program that's always boggled my mind is when folks like Taxpayers for Common Sense and the coalitions we work in try to make the program better. We get a significant resistance from folks who are representing individuals and communities that are at the most risk. And I say that, and as you mentioned, there's so many subsidies within flood insurance that ends up hiding the amount of risk you face. And so now that we are actually, the program is moving towards what I call true risk. So the rates are moving towards being based on actual risks. Basically, people are having to cover the cost of reality. But elected members of Congress have been very resistant to the massive, at times, let's be honest, it has been massive increases in rates that people are going to pay. But the people who are potentially paying the most seeing the greatest increase in rates are the people who are at the greatest risk of loss. And again, it's not just that you have a risk of loss of property. When you're in a flood zone or you face a flood, even if you're not technically in a flood zone, because let's be clear, sometimes the maps aren't always accurate because of things have changed. Conditions have changed on the ground. Conditions have changed in the climate. So places that used to not flood are at risk of flood now. If you are at risk, you're at risk of losing your life. And I think that's extremely important when we look at some of the floods that have happened recently. So you see places that you have significant more risk than you used to, or perhaps that people just didn't realize that they were in risk. And yeah, I just think of the floods that were in Tennessee recently, and now actually this year in the Eastern Appalachians of Eastern Kentucky and, and West Virginia. So again, I just, I mean, I say this over and over again, we really are concerned about disaster policy because it costs us money and it causes disruptions. But this is one of those areas where getting it right really will actually save lives. I love saving dollars, but I mean, if you can actually save lives, it becomes a moral issue. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, Josh, that before uh, I got into this business, if you would, I was an officer in the Coast Guard whose job literally was to save lives. So I certainly get that and about communicating the risk. And, and you know, the flood insurance program is a classic case of of concentrated benefits. There's uh, people in, you know, more than 60% uh, of the policies are in Florida, uh, Texas, and uh, Louisiana. And so those members really support it. But it is this kind of 
twisted sort of thing where by trying to keep rates low, they're actually keeping their constituents at risk, those that they're supposedly serving. And so it's really bizarre. And then the rest of the country is actually paying for those huge subsidies and the fact that the program is, you know, borrowed tens of billions, 30, 30 40 billion dollars from from taxpayers. You're listening to Budget Watchdog All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending and tax issues facing the nation. I'm your host, TCS President Steve Ellis, and we continue now with TCS Senior Policy Analyst Josh Sewell. So we've talked, Josh, a bit about some of the programs that are in place and planning, but we know that from experience that after a disaster is really when the wallet opens, Uncle Sam's wallet opens, and, and the money flows. And, you know, since 2017, federal taxpayers have shelled out more than $139 billion in disaster assistance for Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Maria, Michael, and Florence, as well as the wildfires in the Western United States and other disasters. But we've made some changes in these funding formulas of this post-disaster funding um, where it can actually help to pre-spawn, right, Josh? So can you talk to our listeners about that a little bit? It's very important to have proper disaster response, but the best time to respond to a disaster is before it happens. And that means you're basically preparing to do the response. And, uh, and if we do it right, Oftentimes, you can prepare a community in such a way that what would have been a disaster is either not a disaster or is, has much less damage. And so that's what we call pre-disaster response. And so starting about 10 years ago, really, um, in the, under the Obama administration, there was a big move towards, uh, it's called mitigation. We call it mitigating future disasters. And so within some of these response programs, uh, part of the money is set aside. We're obviously going to have to spend money uh, immediately after disaster to help people. Uh, first of all, you're rescuing people, you're doing emergency repairs, you're, you're giving them the food, the water, the shelter. This is a, these are dollars that have to go out quickly uh, for actual response. But when you're doing that response, instead of, for example, fixing a levy that has failed or simply fixing a bridge that failed um, to the exact standards it was, we need to turn some of that money to make people stronger, to make communities stronger, to make them safer. Uh, so that's an important thing that has moved. Some of the money is moving that way. But also, even before a disaster strikes, when communities are sitting here, you're doing your budgets for the year or for your five-year plans, whatever you're doing, that's the real time to think about how do we respond? How are we going to respond to a flood? Because it's going to happen someday. And that's the truth about floods, tornadoes. Some disaster is going to happen at some point, and communities can identify the risks and start preparing for that. And so I think it's important, though, is to talk about how we spend so much more money on response than we do on preparation. Now that has changed a little bit, but it, not enough. As an example, so for last year, for 20, fiscal year 2021, the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, made $1.16 billion available under this thing called the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities uh, BRIC program. And also some of them went to a, a technical part called the Flood Mitigation Assistance. So this good program about it's exactly what it says, building resilient infrastructure <laughs> for a community or mitigating floods, before, mitigating floods before they happen. Spectacular program, $1.16 billion. But that funding was out of a pool of 788 applications for $4 billion in brick and another half a billion dollars in flood mitigation assistance. So the demand is much higher than the amount of funding going out the door. And so that's something that we really need to think about is how to increase funding, get the funding out the door better for 
these disasters because tackling a disaster before it happens is actually one of the greatest ways to save money. And Josh, we know one of the challenges here is the money that is appropriated. Now, some of it is being siphoned off of post-disaster funding. Um, I get that. But then the money that's in the budget, that's in the regular appropriations, that's all competing with everything else in the budget. Whereas after disaster, these are all emergency spending. And so it's you know, we don't care about um, what the budget is. We're just going to spend however much we want to, to to spend. And so that's one of these challenges and competitions, right? But it, but I guess one thing else I take out of what you're saying is at least it seems the communities are, are getting it, you know, that they're saying, hey, there's money out here. And of course, they want the money. But by the same token, if they have good plans in place, they're trying to do things to do the right things to be prepared for future disasters. Exactly. Um, there are communities that are moving that way. Now, as you said, we tend to open up our wallets uh, after a disaster. And that is often that is often good. It's often what you need to do. Now, the, the problem is we aren't as diligent about ensuring that that money is going to where it's actually needed or that. And, and let's be clear, in the heat of the moment, we may appropriate, make available more money than is actually needed. And so that's in a really important part of, again, about identifying risks, identifying potential costs, and getting that budgeted and planned for up front. But also in that competition, we have a very short-sighted understanding of what costs are. Um, we, If you've listened to this podcast before, you, we talk all the time about congressional budget office scores and claimed savings that may happen later. In truth, when communities prepare for disasters, when they say if you're in, in a flood-prone area, if you build your infrastructure better, so basically you're literally making buildings higher, you are uh, implementing sort of this kind of green uh, or gray infrastructure where it, you use the natural uh, courses of the rivers uh, instead of fighting against them. You, you do a little bit of this. You keep, your, um, you, keep, you keep your wetlands in the low areas and you build only on the higher areas. You actually end up saving money. And so this becomes a, a budgetary issue where we need to do a better job of rewarding communities uh, and on the federal level of changing our funding formulas and getting the congressional budget office and the office of management of budget in the president's um, in, in the executive agency to to tilt the scale towards those communities that come up with plans that work for them for the risks that they are facing and are actually achievable. You know, and I think one example uh, we we talked we started this talking about hurricanes is that I read this week that only thirty five percent of jurisdictions out there have the most up-to-date building codes. And so we saw a real example, and you may be able to speak to this more because you worked on it, is that after Hurricane Andrew, I mean, Florida changed a lot of its building codes. You know, And so they actually now, if you are building uh, houses in Florida, they are built to better withstand um, hurricane force winds. Like, And they have to be that way because it became a requirement. Similarly, in California and other earthquake-prone areas, you have to construct your buildings to withstand earthquakes, like because we know that's going to happen. And the big thing is it costs more money to do that. It's true. It costs more money to build a house uh, to higher standards. It costs more money for communities to, to, uh, to build themselves towards better standards. But we save a lot of money by having less disaster response and having less uh, costs. And again, you also can save lives. 
Right. And we recognize that, you know, the building code for uh, Florida isn't the building code for Michigan, which isn't the one for Texas, which isn't the one for California. So it's not even like having a national building code um, or even a floor. It's just that making sure that you have a building code that is that is strong for the risks that that community particularly uh, faces. And so that's something that we've supported uh, our entire uh, existence. Now, Josh, we talked a bunch about, um, you know, the funding and about making sure it's going to the right places. But one of the real challenges that we've found over the years is actually following the money and tracking this funding that the federal government doesn't seem to always want to know where their money went or when it went or what, what is uh, uh, you know, being funded. So can you talk a little bit about, about that, about the issues of tracking the funding and some of the challenges that we face? Yeah. One of the unfortunate things about disaster spending is that agencies often don't even try to track it. So unless they are, unless the appropriations bill, the spending bill requires the agencies to separate the tracking for those emergency dollars compared to their base budget dollars, they sometimes don't do it. And as an example, I know we looked at, uh, or actually the inspector general recently looked at the department of transportation. Uh, recently, the department of transportation inspector general did a report on the federal transit administration. And so talking uh, mass transit for the most part. Uh, and one of the reports that they did showed that after Superstorm Sandy, the FTA had received $10 billion in funds to help with recovery. Now remember, this was in the fall of 2012 is when this happened. And the money really got out the door by the, by the beginning of, uh, I think it was in January, 2013. So by the end of 2022, only $4.3 billion had actually been spent. So you're talking $5.7 billion, almost 60% of the funds eight years later, seven years later, has not been spent. So why not? It's a good question. And there may be various reasons, but even figuring out where that money was or where that money is, is difficult because the agency wasn't actually tracking those dollars separate from its other dollars. And the reason you need to track disaster spending different separately from other spending is because it's for a different purpose. And as you mentioned earlier, there's often less oversight initially because if you were around and we were during the, the debate around Superstorm Sandy is there was an attempt to slow down some of that emergency spending at the beginning to say, how much do we really need? Do we really think we need $60 billion for all the various things? And folks who said, let's slow this train down were pilloried and just basically ran over eventually. And, by the folks who wanted that money. Yet here we are 10 years later and there still is money unspent from Superstorm Sandy. So that means either we didn't need that money or we directed that money into the wrong uses. And so that's something that we have to actually be honest about in these debates is that absolutely we want to help in response, but money itself doesn't actually solve all the problems because I mean, money doesn't magically fill sandbags. The, having the money doesn't actually get the boats in the right places. Like you actually have to have these resources and you have to make sure they're going where they're needed because otherwise it's a waste of time and it's a waste of money and it's a waste of opportunity. Yeah. Recovery uh, doesn't happen overnight. I mean, certainly the disaster can happen pretty much overnight or within a couple of days, but the recovery is years in the making. And that's why, you know, you should be 
allocating these funds and even have clawbacks or uh, ways that you can um, meet it out or have triggers for the funds to be released at a later date because you know there's a fog of, like they talk about a fog of war there's a fog of disaster and you don't know whether you know what all the needs are you know the needs are great and certainly the politicians are there and their their big thing is is like strike while the iron's hot get all you can and then the time that the people are the most sympathetic to their needs is right after the disaster but the reality is is that it's going to take years um to rebuild in these areas or to, to remake these communities and yet and do it in a smart way. Uh, and yet there's always a, a push to get all as much cash as you can and not a lot of tracking afterwards. And that's certainly what, you know, Taxpayers for Common Sense, what we're doing is trying to follow those dollars and make sure the money is being spent well, because we're not doing anybody a, a, a service if the money is wasted. And and I guess that gets to my, my last point that I want to talk about. I mean, you know, taxpayers are, 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 are heavily invested in disaster response and recovery. And, and really, what, what, what do taxpayers deserve? What, what, is, what does Uncle Sam owe our taxpaying public, our budget watchdog AF listeners? What do they owe them with this huge amount of money that goes out in disaster response? We're owed good policy. Taxpayers deserve to have disaster policies that work, that save lives, and make us more prepared for the future. One of the more important things to understand is that disasters are going to happen. We can't stop a hurricane. You can't stop a flood. These events are going to occur. And so we can learn lessons from what has worked and what has not worked in the past. In my opinion, that is the biggest shortcoming in our federal disaster policies is that we don't have baked into it a requirement that we look back and say, so what did work? What didn't work? Did we have enough money to respond? Did we have enough money to do good mitigation? And is this community that was devastated by this disaster, is it now better prepared for the next time that tornado occurs? Is it better prepared for the next time that hurricane occurs? And if so, let's take those lessons learned and show other communities and encourage them to make themselves better prepared. And so I think that's the biggest thing for me is we know these are going to happen. Disasters, they aren't anomalies. I mean, sure. I mean, it, odds are a tornado is not going to hit the same town uh, every year, but it's going to hit somewhere. So let's figure out what works, what doesn't work. And I think that means we ultimately need better budgeting, diligent preparation, and a sober review of communities and the federal government's performance. That's before, during, and after disasters. Um, that's how you save dollars. And again, the most important thing here is that's how you save lives. Thanks, Josh. Uh, really well said. So there you have it, listeners. Vicious cycles can afford quiet opportunity when taxpayers are prepared, really prepared. This is the frequency. Mark it on your dial. Subscribe and share. And know this. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks, and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode and I hope you'll meet us right here.